We just thank you for your goodness and kindness and mercy and how faithful you are to each and every one of us. May your presence just continue to rest upon us as we come before you and help us just to receive more of you, Lord, in everything we do in every aspect of our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh. <laughs> Wow, God is so good. You guys are awesome. We just love you guys. So good to see you each, each week, and welcome to all you new guests. Wow, I just love his presence. It's hard to transition, isn't it? <laughs> we don't need a transition. Just stay in his presence, and hopefully you can soak while you listen to me up here. Um, yeah, so we, we've been in a series on the kingdom of God, and we're on message number nine, I believe, aren't we? So it's been a while, and uh, we've been essentially gr trying to grapple with what is the kingdom of God, and I made the audacious statement near the beginning that, well, the kingdom of God is essential to understanding the whole entire message and teaching and ministry of Jesus Christ. He was all about the kingdom of God. And one thing we have to grapple with is what is the kingdom of God, first of all? And secondly, how is it that the kingdom is both present and future? And so back in January, January 15th, uh, I finally uh, preached a message on that, reconciling the present and future dynamics of the kingdom of God. And the reason that was important to reconcile is because that is the number one key to understanding the whole New Testament. Understanding how is it that the kingdom of God is both present and future. Okay, and so if you're interested in any of these previous messages, feel free to go to ctfottawa.com or we also have a podcast on iTunes, Catch the Fire Ottawa. Today I'm uh, continuing the message I started two weeks ago, that was February 5th. We're moving on, so for, essentially for the first eight messages, really focused on the uh, message of Jesus, specifically the teachings of Jesus, uh, the ministry of Jesus. And now, given that we, we reconciled, or at least hopefully reconciled, how it is that the kingdom's both present and future, we're moving on now to other New Testament writers to show you how this plays out. And, and if you can get this uh, framework that it's a huge key to understanding the whole New Testament. And so this is essentially part two of a message I started two weeks ago on Paul the Apostle. Okay, so kingdom of God living in the radical middle, the already not yet. How do you reconcile that the kingdom's already not yet? So for those of you who weren't here, if you're new, just a couple minutes of a refresher. The kingdom of God, what is the kingdom of God? It's essentially the rule of God. When Jesus said, hey, repent, the kingdom of God is here, he could have said, repent, the rule of God is here. The reign of God is here. When we think kingdom, we often think a geographical location like the kingdom of England, and it's not. It means a, it means a, time, a period of time when God would reign sovereign, uh, sovereignly over his creation. Okay, it means reign, the reign of God. So once we grappled with that, we then went on to try and reconcile how it is, I already said this, how the kingdom is both present and future. And at the coming of Jesus, because of how he came and what he preached, this resulted in a radical shift in the early church's eschatological perspective. What does that mean? It's, eschatology just simply means study of the end, the end time. So eschaton means the end. And everybody at that time was expecting God to come. When the kingdom of God came, that was the end of history. Okay, so they saw time as uh, this age, which was Satan's age, and that means there is sickness, demonic oppression, injustice, sin, all this stuff because it's Satan's age. Then God was going to come on the scene, bring an end to history completely, eradicate this present evil age, bring the kingdom of God, and all righteousness would reign completely. Satan would be done with the overthrow of Satan. So this is what they're all expecting. And then Jesus came and said, hey, the kingdom of God is here. Repent and believe the good news. Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago, how that was so contrary to their expectations, the way Jesus came, that they had a huge problem with that. 
They couldn't receive it because he came as a humble, suffering servant and said, hey, I am the king. The kingdom is here because I'm here, but I'm coming as a mustard seed, so to speak. Okay? And so because this was so contrary to their expectations, they had to totally shift their idea, their eschatological perspective. That's, that's what I was talking about. It, it resulted in a radical altered eschatological perspective, and every New Testament writer had this perspective after Jesus came. So Jesus, his teaching and ministry provided the framework for this. Okay, so just as there's two advents of Christ, the first coming and the second coming, so there are two manifestations of the God's kingdom. It's already been inaugurated. It's not yet been consummated. Okay, so we live between the times. The Old Testament prophets said in the last days, in the latter days, now we're living in those last days. Okay, what had to shift is they thought it was going to be a dramatic end, right? Quick and done with. And the eschaton has been 2,000 years and we're still in it. Does that make sense? So they had to come to terms with how is it that the kingdom came with Jesus and it's here right now, but it's not yet. And that's so important to understanding the New Testament. So therefore, the kingdom's already not yet. Jesus coming set the future in motion. The coming age that they're all waiting for is dawned. And we await the consummation in his second coming. So the key point for us, and you're going to hear me say this a million times in a few different ways because that's so important is that as Christians, we're called to be living the life of the future now. We're God's future eschatological people called to live in the present evil age to bring heaven now and show everybody else what heaven's like so they come and join the party. That's what we're called to do. We're supposed to live the values, the perspectives, and, the, and, and behavior of the future kingdom, heaven, and demonstrate that here and now. We're a colony of heaven living here and now. So... I gave you this graph, and for you visual people, I think hopefully it's helpful. It's this, you can visualize, okay, when Adam and Eve fell, sin entered in, and this evil present age, Satan started ruling over this, you'll see in, in later in this message, he's called the kingdom, the prince of the air. Okay, so he has been ruling, and then Jesus came, the first coming of Christ, and he brought with it the future age, <laughs> The age of the spirit, the coming kingdom, the kingdom of light. It's called a whole bunch of different things in different ways. Eternal life. We'll talk about that next week, probably. Jesus brought it. But the thing that was surprising is the present evil age didn't go away. <laughs> they were all expecting it to go away, right? So the, this age is still going on. The old age is still happening. But Jesus brought the future into this age. And we're supposed to live, the, as, as I already said, the future now in the present. So we're in between the times, we're in the last days, we're in the already not yet, waiting for the final consummation when the second coming of Christ comes. Then what they're all expecting, this final overthrow of Satan and death and sin is going to happen, and then eternity, eternal life. So, as I already mentioned, from the New Testament perspective, the whole Christian existence and theology, this is why it's so important, has this eschatological tension as its basic framework. That's why I'm spending so much time on this and showing you, okay, we're, we're dealing with Paul now, and I'm going to see, we'll deal with John, I'm sure, and I'm debating on some of the other New Testament writers. Just so you can see, this is throughout the whole entire New Testament. This isn't just, right, uh, including Jesus. And so it's important to grapple with this and understand it. So last time we started how, to, how this, to look at how this altered eschatological perspective uh, became the basic theological framework with Paul, and this is part two of that message. So if you weren't here and you want to hear it, it's February 5th uh, when I preached that. But even if you weren't here, this is a standalone message, so hopefully it'll make sense. So, Paul's already not yet perspective. For Paul, the future is absolutely certain. Absolutely no questions asked. Victory's coming. The complete overthrow of Satan's coming. The consummation's coming. It's a done deal. Okay. But its certainty is based on these two essential eschatological realities that are already present now, okay? And therefore, they guarantee the future consummation is going to happen. And these two things, if you're here, remember, is the resurrection 
of Jesus Christ and the gift of the Spirit. Those two things for Paul were the absolute evidence that the kingdom of God is here, the age to come has already come in the present, and that its final consummation is a done deal, right? V-days ha- or D-days happen, we're in the between time, and V-day is going to happen. We're just in the final battle right now, our battles, plural. So for Paul, through the resurrection of Christ and the gift of the Spirit, God himself set the future in motion so that everything, everything, everything in the present is determined by the appearance of the future. Everything. And we have to live from that perspective. That's how the early church, that's how the early church lived, and we have to continue. In fact, all of Christian ethics, everything we're called to do is in light of the fact that the future's here, and we have to live that way. The Sermon on the Mount, it seems crazy and unreasonable. Why? Because the ethics of the kingdom is, hey, this is how kingdom people live. This is how people in heaven live. You're supposed to live that way now as God's eschatological people showing the world what heaven's like. Okay? So by the Spirit, that's the key. The Spirit is the empowering presence of God that enables us to live that way, to live like Jesus. Jesus came and showed us what heaven's like, and he said, now follow my example, carry your cross, follow me, deny yourself, because I want the world to see how good heaven is. Preach the good news, the good news of the kingdom of God. The kingdom's here now, not only in me, Jesus Christ, but you're called to spread the kingdom as well to this present evil age. So that's our mandate. That's our mandate. Remember uh, Matthew 24, 14, I believe, or is it 13? Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all nations. Then the end will come. Then the final consummation will come. Our duty as Christians is to spread the good news of the kingdom that it's here and now. And how do we do it? By showing people what the future looks like, what heaven looks like. Okay, so the resurrection of Christ marked the beginning of the end and the turning of the ages. And I'm just going to show you a few scriptures that show, like, just think about what, what I just said in light of this. 1 Corinthians 10, 11. Paul talks about some of the Old Testament, particularly when the uh, children of Israel were in the desert with Moses. Then he says, these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. Right? What's that mean? It means the, the future's here now. We're God's eschatological people now. The, the, the culmination of the ages are here in the present evil age. And the old covenant, the Old Testament people were sh- uh, showing us their examples to us on whom the age to come has come upon. Look at Galatians 1, 3, and 4. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. You'll see this language all through the New Testament. This age, the age to come. Why did Jesus come? He says to rescue us from this present evil age. Now we're called to live as God's redeemed people in this evil age to redeem other people, to preach the good news of the kingdom. Colossians 1, 12 and 14. This is at the end of an awesome prayer that Paul prays. And he says, Giving joyful thanks to the Father who's qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. Present tense. For he has, past tense, rescued us from the dominion of darkness, this present evil age, and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, and whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Present tense. We're currently in the kingdom of light, but we're still living in the present evil age. From that. Now, how do we live in this present evil age? I'm going to show you present, uh, Hebrews 6, 4 to 6. Now, he's making a totally different point right here. But I, what I want to show you is that these five things that he lists are five things that if you're saved by grace through Christ, that you experience these things. It's really interesting. It, for, it is impossible for those who've once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, look at this, who've shared in the Holy Spirit, we talked about how important that is, and who've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age. Isn't that interesting? As Christians, we can and should and actually do taste of the powers of the age to come because we're supposed to live by the powers of the age to come and bring them in the present age, right? 
So that so the, as a Christian, as a as a believer of Christ, right? We are called to have this power and to operate in this power and to live by the power of the coming age in the present and to show people the powers of the coming age in the present. So the old age is still present, yet God's people already experience the powers of the age to come now. So our true identity is that we're citizens of another world. And we live in this present world as a colony in heaven. You'll remember Philippians 3.20. Paul actually explicitly says that. We are citizens of heaven. We're citizens of the age to come. We're, we're future people living now in the present age. But, but our identity, our citizenship isn't in this present age. It's in the age to come. And we're supposed to live in this present age as citizens of heaven. Right? That's why God, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, what? Pray, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That we're supposed to bring heaven to earth. Matthew 6.33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. We're supposed to seek God's kingdom first because we're supposed to live as God's kingdom children here and now. And show the world what it's like. Now, the spirit is the key to the future orientation of Paul in the early church. The spirit is key. We can't do this on our own. And that's where a lot of people miss it. That's where a lot of people miss it, is that we, th we, it's like, okay, Jesus came and now we're out in the trenches on our own trying to live in this present evil age in our own strength. And that's why it's so important to get back to biblical Christianity, living life by the Spirit. It's, it's not an option. <laughs> and, and you're going to see not only from today's message how important that is, but but. Remember, this year's theme, which is, should be our theme for our whole lives, is a presence-driven life. Living life by the Spirit, because that's what we're called to do in the New Covenant. We're supposed to live, because it's the future age of the Spirit. And we're supposed to live by the Spirit now, by the Spirit, by the power of the Spirit. Right? Because the Spirit produces God's character in us. The fruit of the Spirit. We can't do it on our own. We can't live the Sermon on the Mount on our own. So a lot of people look at that and they're like, oh my goodness, here's a law that Jesus came and brought and it's even harder than the other law, the old covenant. We can't, <laughs> it's by grace, it's by God's empowering presence that we're even able to live that way because what the Spirit does is he brings God char God's character and produces it in us and, in, and that's what the intent of the law was to do but it couldn't do it because we didn't have God's power by the Spirit to do it. And so that's the point is God now put his Spirit in us. You see in Ezekiel 36 when he prophesies about the new covenant, I'll put my Spirit in you and he'll inspire you to mo and motivate you to do my laws and to keep my commands. It's all by the Spirit. So it's not an option. It's so important. And I believe, honestly, I believe this so I, I can't even express to you how much I believe that it's such a demonic attack from Satan. How the Holy Spirit has been totally marginalized and taken out of the church. For the most part. For centuries. Why? Because he's the key of new covenant living. We're going to get into this scripturally. Not only today, but for sure in the future because it's so important. Why is there such an attack on that? Why is it that people are so weirded out by the Holy Spirit? And you start, oh, it's totally fine to talk about God the Father all you want, Jesus all you want. But as soon as you talk about the Holy Spirit, oh, better watch out. Don't get into the weird stuff. Right? No, we, <laughs> that's what we're called to do. It's, it's just such, I'm, uh, such a passion of mine because it's so... You know, and then people, oh, you're overemphasizing the Holy Spirit. You never hear that about Jesus or the Father. Why is it like, you know, oh, you better watch out. Don't talk about Jesus too much. No, it's God. It's God's Spirit. And we're called to live by the Spirit. That's the key to the new covenant. It's so important. So by the Spirit's presence, believers taste the life to come and become oriented towards its consummation. So I'm going to just, we started talking about the gift of the Spirit last time, and I'm going to just continue on and finish on this because it's so important, especially in the writings of Paul. So the key is the Spirit is both the fulfillment of the eschatological promises of God and the down payment of our certain future. The Holy Spirit's both. 
Okay, so we're both already and not yet. The spirit is the evidence of the already. You remember last time we showed a whole bunch of scriptures of this. And he's a guarantee of the not yet. Okay, if you're like, what are you talking about? Here's one slide of just a summary of what we talked about last time. Some of it. The metaphors that Paul uses for the Holy Spirit. These three metaphors, we went into detail last time and I gave you the scriptures. The Holy Spirit's a down payment. And he always says guaranteeing what's to come. He's a seal. For the day of redemption, he's and the first fruits. If you think about these metaphors, all of these are eschatological images of the presence of the Spirit guaranteeing the future. Guaranteeing the future. That's the point. The first fruits. This is the first fruits, right? Remember, the kingdom is inaugurated, not yet consummated. But you have proof that it's going to be consummated because the Spirit came. And he's living in you. And that's why hope is always connected to the Holy Spirit. Romans 15, 13, right? That the God of hope would fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you would overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. You'll notice there's always that connection. Future hope, the eschatological hope, Holy Spirit, because he's living in you now. The future has come present in you now because the Spirit has come. So each of these emphasize the Spirit as either present evidence of future realities, the already, or is the assurance of the future glory not yet or both? Already not yet. And if you're interested, uh, two weeks ago preached on this, you can listen to it more. What I want to move on to today is that the Spirit is also the evidence that the eschatological promises of, the Jew, of Paul's Jewish heritage have been fulfilled. He's the fulfillment of all these centuries of promises. And someday we're going to go through a lot of them. Okay, because it's so important. You'll see over and over again, the Spirit is prophesied by different prophets that he's the key to the new covenant that, that God was going to bring. Okay, But one I just want to show you today, for the sake of just showing you this, is that for Paul, the Spirit is the clear evidence that the future had dawned. He, okay, Because if you remember, we went over in the first couple messages, and during the intertestamental period between Malachi and John the Baptist, they called it the time of the quenched Spirit. That's why there's no prophets in the land. The Spirit left. Ezekiel 10, he left. So, so they're like, hey, when the Spirit comes back, that's when the, the evidence that the kingdom of God has come. Okay. Now, Paul, interestingly enough, sees Christ in the Spirit as the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12. Look at this. Galatians 3, 13 to 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it's written, cursed is everyone who hang, hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that, look at this, the blessing given to Abraham might come upon the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. How many times have I heard a sermon where people quote that and don't say the end part of it? <laughs> about the promise of the Spirit, right? By faith, right, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law so that we'd have the blessing of Abraham. The gent but then they, they stop there and then they go to Deuteronomy 28 and say, look at all these blessings you get. The Holy Spirit's the blessing because he's the promise, he's the fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham that the Gentiles are going to be included and that all nations are going to be blessed through you. And that was the evidence that God's promises to Abraham have been fulfilled by the Spirit. So, the gift of the Spirit is the certain evidence that the time of the law, this is important, the law has passed. How do we know? The Spirit's come. I'm going to show you a couple of scriptures on this. So, the certain evidence that the law, the Old Testament, has passed because the Gentiles have at last inherited the promise made to Abraham. In other words, it's the Spirit that is the evidence that the Abrahamic covenant has now been fulfilled for the Gentiles. The Spirit. So in light of that, look at, look at scriptures like this. Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. Now he's talking to Gentiles. In chapter 1, all the way up until this point, he's talking about we, are we, and then he says you, because he's talking to Gentiles. So he says, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed you were marked with him, with a seal, there's that metaphor, the promised Holy Spirit. Have you ever thought about what that meant? The promised Holy Spirit. The promised Holy Spirit to Israel, right? Because he's alluding to all these Old Testament scriptures that are promising that the Spirit's going to come, and that's the evidence that the kingdom of God is going to come, and that his new covenant is here. Okay, so 
The promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit, there's that again, down payment, deposit, guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Second Corinthians, now, this is a long, I'm not going to go, so this is 2 Corinthians 3, 1 to 4, 6 is all about this. Contrasting the new covenant from the old covenant. And you'll see if you read that chapter all the way to 4, 6, the whole point is he's distinguishing the new covenant by the spirit versus the old covenant of the law given to Moses. The whole chapter is about that. Remember, the spirit is the evidence of the new covenant and that the, old, that the law is gone now. So here's just one verse to show you this. Verse 6, he's made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. Now, I want you to think about that. How is Paul defining the new covenant here? <laughs> the covenant of the spirit. That's how he's, def- right? Ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. The new covenant of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. The new covenant's defined by the spirit. Why? Because like I said, they were waiting for the Spirit to come back, and that was the guarantee that the kingdom of God came. Ezekiel 36. I I talked about that earlier. This is an allusion to that verse, in fact. Look at Romans 7, 4 to 6. So, my brothers and sisters, look at this. You also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, the resurrection. In order that we might bear fruit for God, for when we were in the realm of the flesh, notice past tense, we talked about the flesh a little bit last week, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. But now, present tense, by dying to once bound us, we have been released from the law, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit. Not the old way of the written code. The law, just like the flesh, has, is, is part of this old age. And we're no longer part of that. We're now part of the future age of the Spirit, and now we're living in the new way of the Spirit. That's why the, the law is gone now, it says. It di- you died to the law. It's part of the old age. In fact, in Galatians 3, 1 to 5, Paul calls the law, he, he says, works of the flesh. You know, you know how audacious that was to Jews? He's putting the law in the same category as sexual immorality, drunkenness and orgies and witchcraft and on and on. The law. It's all part of the old age, and you're no longer part of that. Now you live by the Spirit. And on that note, just as a reminder, because this is so important, and I'm going to probably give a whole sermon on this someday, I'm sure. The Spirit-flesh contrast, think about this, in Paul is primarily an eschatological reality. There's a lot of confusion when Paul talks about that, what that even means. It doesn't mean what most people think it means, and I'll show you that later in the sermon if if we have time, that it's not... He's not talking about inward sin, sinful desires. He's talking about a mindset, the values, the perceptions and behavior of this present evil age. Because if you look at when he lists the lust of the flesh, eight out of 15 of them have to do with community issues, like factions and dissensions, <laughs> not inward sinful desires. So the flesh has to do with this mindset, this power of this present evil age that people who aren't redeemed live by still. And as Christians, we're no longer under the flesh. That's why he says you've died to the flesh, you're under the spirit. So we're not, so so the flesh, the, okay. The flesh is living out of one's sinful self-centeredness and it belongs to this age and it belongs to the past. So just again, the flesh is the values, perspective, and behavior of the former age that now belongs to the past in Christ. It's done with, but it not totally. <laughs> it's already, but not yet. 
Okay, so we who have received the Spirit live in keeping with the Spirit by the power of the Spirit, living the life of the future now. But we live in a world that's still full of evidence that people are living by the flesh, right? And we live between the times. So that's why we're called to live by the Spirit in this present evil age amongst people who are living by the flesh so that we can preach the gospel of the kingdom to them and get them redeemed and out of the dominion of darkness and into the kingdom of light. Salvation, on that note. Now we're talking, okay? Salvation, you'll see, is an already not yet eschatological reality. We're talking about, right, the already not yet, and you're going to see this when I show you a few scriptures on this. Paul's entire understanding of salvation is, uh, is this already not yet eschatological reality. Let me give you one example, justification for Paul and his Jewish heritage. This is a Jewish idea, justification, was a thoroughly eschatological idea. What I mean by that is it was going to happen at the end. Remember when God comes, the end of history, and then judgment day is going to happen right then and there. Okay. That was a Jewish understanding. Now, one of the things that was going to happen at the eschaton at the judgment day is that God would justify the righteous, justification, and condemn the wicked. Now, what Paul came to understand is that all are unrighteous, right? All have fallen short of the glory of God, and that justification's already taken place in Christ in the past, so it's been removed from our future and has been put into the past. But it's, Judgment Day is still going to happen in the future. Now, if you guys were here last year, I did a whole series on that. But what I want to say to, to show you Paul's understanding about this is that we're now those who've already experienced God's gracious justification. And there's nothing you can do about it except trust in God. And that's what faith is. You've been saved by grace through faith. What does that mean? Trusting in God that he redeemed you through Christ from all this evil stuff. And that on the day of judgment, you're saved by grace. That's all you, you can do about it is believe God, trust God, faith, and receive that. The condemnation has been taken from the future. It's already placed on Christ in the past. Now, let me show you scripture on this. Romans 8, 1 to 4. This condemnation is talking about the final eschatological condemnation. We often use it, and it's probably fine to say there's no condemnation in Christ, so if you're feeling condemned, that's not cool. That's fine. But he's actually talking about the final judgment here. Therefore, there is now, present tense, no condemnations for those who are in Christ Jesus. Look at this. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit... Now, he calls it the law of the Spirit. Isn't that interesting? The new covenant. The law of the Spirit... Who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh. Remember we talked about that. God did by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. Look at this. Who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. It's the key of the new covenant, the absolute key. And then you read the rest of Romans 8 and you'll see. He goes on to talk about this more and elaborate on that. So the point, now, present tense, already there's no condemnation. The future's been removed to the past. But <laughs> it's also not yet. Look at this. Galatians 5.5. 5, For through the Spirit... We eagerly await the, by faith the righteousness for which we hope. Future. So we await the final hope of this justification. In other words, it's already and not yet. You see how this framework is so important to understand? Because otherwise these scriptures are a total mystery. Because if you just read this and then you read what I just read, Romans 8, 1, you'd be like, wait a minute, I thought there's now no condemnation and that the future was put in the past in Christ. And Paul would say, yeah. <laughs> but, but also by, look at hope. Remember we talked about how the Holy Spirit's connected hope. We await the final righteousness by faith. 
That on judgment day, we also are also going to be proclaimed righteous as well. So it's both already and not yet. Here's a scripture showing that. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 11. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Remember, that's what the series is about. The kingdom of God. Future, not yet. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Future, not yet. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, past tense, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. How important is that? Salvation is by the Spirit, too. It's not, right? Jesus and the Spirit. He's the one who affects salvation in our lives. And it's by his power that we talked about earlier that we live the life of the future now. But you see this holy already not yet, just in that one portion of scripture, all throughout the New Testament. So the language of salvation for this reason is sometimes past tense. Okay? This is a mystery here, because you hear about this, but why is it? Because this is Paul's understanding. Right? The eschatological framework. Just a couple of references. Ephesians 2, 5, and 8. He made us alive with Christ, even though when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by faith you have been saved. Past tense. Okay? And then dot, 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 verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved, past tense, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it's a gift of God. Romans 5, 1 to 5. Therefore, since we have been, past tense, justified through faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now already stand, right? Present tense. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God, not yet. That's the final consummation of this. Talking about salvation now. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that the suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope. There we go. There's hope again. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he's given us. That hope, right? We experience God's love now through the Holy Spirit. So we have that certain hope that the final consummation is going to happen because we already have the Spirit. But not only that, so that's past tense. Look at this. Sometimes salvation is a present process. 1 Corinthians 1.8, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. (laughs) Okay, so it's a past tense, present process, but if that wasn't enough, salvation sometimes the conclusion to the process, and otherwise it's for its future. So I just read to you Romans 5, 1 to 5. Look at a few verses later, verse 9. Since we have now been justified by his blood already, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Not yet. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son already, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? Not yet. Not only is this so, but it's all, we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation already. Isn't that interesting? I mean, like, this is why back in the day I kept on saying, understanding and grappling with how it is that the kingdom of God is both present and future is completely crucial to understanding the whole New Testament, because the whole New Testament understands it this way. Okay, this is a key this is a key, and if you can get this, it's going to make a whole bunch of mysterious scriptures make sense, because this is how Paul thought of things. Now, because of this, there's this continual tension between present suffering and future glory. You see that over throughout the scriptures. Like, for instance, Philippians 3, 10 to 11. I want to know Christ. This is the only time Paul says this in the whole New Testament. And know, the word know doesn't mean Head knowledge. It doesn't mean I, I, like you re- I read a biography about Jesus and therefore I know him. It's an experiential, intimate relationship he's talking about. It's experience. Experiential reality. I want to know Christ. Yes, know the power of his resurrection 
and the participation of his sufferings, both. Becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. So we're to know Christ simultaneously in both ways. In two ways, both the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. We, both, right? The already not yet. The power of the age has come, but also because we're living in a present evil age where people are still living catasarca by the flesh, there's going to be some suffering. Romans, again, we're talking about the tension between suffering and future glory. Now, if we're children of God, then we're heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory, future. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be future tense revealed in us. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit already grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies, not yet. You see over and over again this already not yet. So this is how we're to understand the Lord's table. We celebrate the benefits of the new covenant looking back on what made it possible, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, his death and resurrection, looking forward to what it ultimately signifies, which is the wedding feast of the Lamb. Already not yet. It's a constant reminder of this already not yet eschatological reality that we're living in between the times. So thus for Paul, all of present life, all of present life, all of present life is conditioned by this twofold reality. Everything. That through the resurrection of Christ and the gift of the Spirit, God set the future in motion so that we're already citizens of our new homeland. Philippians 3.20. Yet we live out the future in the present. And this totally conditions our ethical life. I talked about this a little bit earlier, but I want to show you a couple of scriptures in light of this. We're supposed to live, our ethics are conditioned by the future, and we're supposed to live that way. This is who you are. Now become who you already are, is the way of life in the new covenant. Okay? So God's people are determined not by our present realities, but by the coming kingdom. Ours is to live the life of the future and the present. Look at this interesting script. Look at Paul's argument here. 1 Corinthians 6. They went to a court. Someone took somebody to court. And look at how Paul appeals, how he rebukes them. If any of you has a dispute with one another, do you dare take it before the ungodly judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? Not yet, right? He's appealing to the future. This is who you guys are. You guys are God's future people. And if you're to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases already? Do you not know that you will judge the angels? <laughs> not yet. How much more the things of this life? Right? That's the whole point. Paul's like, hey, guys, you're God's eschatological people. You're supposed to be living in the kingdom of heaven in this present evil age. Isn't any of you competent enough to judge amongst yourselves? 16 to 18, this is such an important portion of scripture. It's talking about new covenant ethics. Okay? So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, the desires of this old age. For the flesh desires what's contrary to the Spirit, the Spirit was contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other so that you're not able to do whatever you want. But if you're led by the Spirit... You're not under the law. Remember, the law has passed away with the coming of the Spirit. Now, I'm going to show you this list just to show you that he's not talking about these inward conflict within your heart. Okay? Look at this. He just gives a list, some random examples. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, Envy, drunkenness, and orgies, and the like. He could have kept going. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Because if you live like this, you're living in the present evil age, the old past way of looking at this life. But notice, eight of these are dealing with community issues, not issues in the inward man. Acts of the flesh. Okay? It's, it's living from the power of this dark evil age. 
So then he goes on, but the fruit of the spirit, right? Because God's producing his character in you is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there's no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, past tense. There's no longer this inward struggle because you have crucified the flesh in Christ. Now you, and with his passions and desires, now look at this, since you live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Since you live in this age of the Spirit, now become a Spirit person and live that way now. Don't live the way that the world lives. In fact, a lot of the times the New Testament uh, translates the word uh, this age as world. But the original Greek means this age. Anyway, I'm going to give you this quote here. Summarize. This is Gordon Fee. He's an amazing New Testament scholar. I love this guy. Probably his biggest fan, maybe. I read all of his. He's amazing. I listen to his courses. He's retired now, but... He helped translate the NIV, the most current one. He's on the committee. And he has this awesome commentary called God's Empowering Presence. Over 900 pages exegeting every scripture on the Holy Spirit in the letters of Paul from the original Greek. It's amazing if you're interested. God's Empowering Presence. But look at this. Here's a quote. Those who have so died with Christ must now live according to the Spirit. They are to walk by the Spirit, be led of the Spirit, bear the fruit of the Spirit, behave according to the Spirit, and so to the Spirit. The coming of the Spirit marks the beginning of the end according of life according to the flesh. Thus believers live between the times. As Romans 8, 9-11 makes clear, they are in the flesh, the body, but not of the flesh, the sinful nature. The body subject to decay, awaiting its final transformation into a spiritual body, 1 Corinthians 15, a body adapted to the final life of the spirit. We live in that hope precisely because we're already spirit people. The already crippled flesh, sinful nature, will finally be brought to ruin at the parousia, which means the second coming of Christ. The spirit already in our present possession will be fully realized at the same parousia. Yes. (laughs) So this is why, above everything else, we're spirit people. The word spiritual should be capital S. Spirit, it means, and it's an adjective meaning things belonging to the spirit. Anything belonging to the spirit. So when it says you're spiritual, it means you're a spirit person. You're a person belonging to the spirit. We're called to be spirit people. We're forgiven, accepted, loved by God, and given the down payment of eternity now, living the life of the future by the power of the Spirit. We ought to be so full of the Spirit that everything we are and do in this life of the future lived out in the present already. Next week, probably, I was going to give a portion of Scripture to show you this, but I'm going to end here on the last slide, Jennifer. All of this to say, (laughs) Paul is such a thoroughly eschatological man that it's very difficult to understand without taking this framework seriously. And I had a portion of scripture from Ephesians 1.13 all the way to 2.8 that I was going to show you all throughout it. Maybe I'll show you next week. Already not yet. And if you don't have this framework as a starting point, it's almost nearly impossible to even understand where Paul's coming from. Okay, because he even in within the three scriptures shows already past tense, already present, already future, right? And so it's so important to come to terms with this already not yet eschatological perspective to understand Paul in the New Testament. Now, a good beginning point for us is this awesome prayer, Ephesians 1 17 to 23. And Paul prays that you'd be filled with the spirit of wisdom and understanding that you would know him. And then it says that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened in order that you would know the hope to which he's called you future. Final eschatological consummation. The glorious inheritance in the saints, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, future. And his incomparably great power for us who believe now. Then he says that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, He's saying that same power that raised Christ from the dead is living in you now. And then he goes on to say, so he's 
at the right hand of God in the heavenly realms, far above all rules and authority and dominion and power and every name that can be named in not only in this present age, but in the age to come. That power is living in you. The authority in Christ we have by the power of the Spirit to live as God's future people now, above all rule and authority and dominion and power now. That's how we spread the kingdom. Then he says, he goes on to say, that he's provided this to the church, which is the fullness of him in every way. In other words, he's given us that the mandate is the body of Christ to f- spread the kingdom by the power of the spirit, the power of the age to come, to live as a colony of heaven now. All that to say this is a good prayer because it's praying for the revelation of this, of the power that we have resident in us that we need to come to terms with in Christ. So on that note, I'm just going to pray. Father, we just thank you so much for your amazing kingdom. We thank you so much that you rule and reign sovereignty over us, sovereignly. I just ask that you help us to live as your future people now in the present by the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us to live in this 21st century, not as 21st century people, but as your eschatological people living in the 21st century, showing people what heaven's like. Help us to live as a colony of heaven here and now, that people would see us and say, I want what they have. That's what heaven's like. Help us to live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit here in this present evil age, and show people what the age of the Spirit, the age to come looks like. Help us to forgive and accept one another and show the world what you are like by our love for not only one another, but for the world. That you would, by your spirit, come and give us that unity of the spirit. And Lord, I just ask that you give us the strength and the revelation to come to terms with the incomparably great power for us who believe. Help us to live by that power, the power of the coming age and the present evil age, and to overcome Satan and his demons by the power of your spirit and spread your kingdom everywhere we go, overthrowing the dominion of darkness by the kingdom of light. Help us to show the world what that looks like, Father. I ask for an increased revelation in that. I ask that your spirit would come manifest your presence upon each and every one of us, not only individually, but corporately, that we would be known as a church who is a spirit-driven church, living from the future, now in the present, God. I ask that you would come and be with us and continue to give us that revelation and open the eyes of our hearts so that we would come to terms with that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, if you would like prayer, we have an awesome prayer team that you guys are up for praying. You can come up and and get prayer if you'd like. We also have coffee and snacks, Trisha mentioned this, in the hall over there. So if you want to stay in fellowship and and have some snacks and coffee, that'd be awesome. If you got to go, that's awesome too. Have an amazing week. Remember, we have soup after the service next week. And so that's going to be fun. Food and fellowship. So anyway, have an amazing week. Thanks for coming out, and God bless you all.